Today's program is sponsored by Reformation Sites, an easy-to-use website platform helping Reformed churches reach out more effectively. Listen at the end of the podcast for a special offer. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, uh, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, who is pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. We're here to interview a good friend of ours, somebody who's been a friend of mine for some years. I famously introduced him once as a good friend and then gave the wrong name, but I'm happy <laughs> to use his correct name today. It's the Reverend John Master, who has recently become uh, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina, taking over from uh, Dr. Joseph Piper, who'd been, I think, the founding president. I was there for many, many years. Uh, so John is, uh, is stepping into big shoes. He's taking on a role at the seminary there. A particular affection for John's uh, children, particularly for young Taylor, who shares a common love of Audrey Hepburn with me. Uh, and I, I also, one of the people that I most effectively discipled at Cornerstone, because when her dad asked what she'd learned from my preaching over the years when I left, she commented that she now knew more about Napoleon than she ever expected in her life. So, uh, I'm glad that somebody took something worthwhile away. From anyway, John, it's great to have you here, man. Great to see you looking so well, clearly ensconced. Is that your own study? or uh? Yes. Yeah, it is. Wow. We just got the books up on the shelves. Those uh, daughters that you mentioned yeah. actually uh, put these books up last nice. week. So starting nice. to get acclimated. You have so many books and so many shelves that you have a ladder. I love the ladder. To them. The ladder. Well, have you just put that there to make yourself look sort of? No, serious? no, no. <laughs> this ladder is is my favorite part of the office. No doubt. It's actually, something that Dr. Piper had uh, someone had given it to him, but uh, oh. made for this office. So it's it's a great feature. So it's like I, um, a Protestant relic. If you, wow. in fact, it has been told that if you make the pilgrimage to Greenville and stand before, or better yet, kneel before the ladder, um, you are imbued with, with grace at that point. Is that not true? It's so that's going fun. to be part of a uh, capital campaign <laughs> <laughs> next year. It's, it's not the one that Jacob was involved in, is it? Can we trace it right the way back and somehow it's... Uh... <laughs> anyway, John, it's great to have you here. Um, how are things going? Well, this is a very interesting time to be in administration in higher education, period. But to be stepping in as president of a seminary at a time of COVID-19, 
everything sort of up in the air about what the future looks like for education, particularly theological education at this point. Uh, what are your thoughts as you step into this role? You, you're not just carrying the typical burden of somebody replacing a well-known and influential figure. You have a whole host of issues crowding in at this particular point. It's a challenging time. There's no question about that. But on the other hand, I think that for us at Greenville, we are really uh, blessed by the Lord in a couple of, I think, unusual ways, uh, particularly during this crisis. For one thing, uh, Dr. Piper, among others, had a great deal of foresight. In the year 2000, he began doing some kind of distance education via, you know, installing video cameras and things in the classrooms. It was mainly for overseas pastors who at the time either couldn't afford to make it to the States or something else prevented them. And so um, we've been, you know, it, it would not be unusual at all at Greenville to have a classroom with, you know, 15 students sitting in front of you and then three students who were tuned in remotely. And so that infrastructure was already there and the professors were already used to that. So moving to a more remote delivery wasn't a huge leap for the Greenville faculty. We hope that it won't be necessary long-term, and, and, and there's every indication that it won't be necessary long-term, but for that time being, the transition wasn't too difficult. We're also in a position where the Lord has really been gracious to us in terms of uh, financial provision and other things. And so, you know, I, those challenges that I know a lot of places are facing, we've uh, perhaps been well-positioned for. And then I think, too, what I come back to in my own mind, because a lot of people have asked me the question that you've asked, you know, do you, do you wish you weren't coming in under these conditions or did it make you give you second thoughts? You know, if I wasn't, if I wasn't so convinced that the kind of education and ministry preparation that we're doing is, is biblically mandated, really, um, then I wouldn't want to do it no matter what the conditions were. So there is a sense in which because in my mind, there is this biblical imperative to train gospel ministers that are going to be faithful to Christ and his church. That's something I'd want to be involved with, whether times were good or times were bad. Mm, that's good. Uh, Jonathan, I have several good friends in the PCA who are graduates of GPTS. And um, one one brother in particular that, that serves with me in, in the Blue Ridge Presbytery who was on the committee examining me when I transferred my ordination into the um, uh, a PCA. He's, he's younger than I am, just sharp, sharp, really gentle guy, extremely kind, but also clearly has been uh, trained very well. And he would point to his time at GPTS as, as invaluable uh, to him. And, and he is, he's one of the guys in our presbytery that, that we're able to look to in terms of really understanding the confession, really knowing church order, um, and also just being a really, really gracious guy. And, and, and that, that I, I can say that same thing about several of my friends who, who are GPTS grads. And so that, that speaks well of, of the training that goes on there. One of the things I've, I've thought about is we've talked 
over the last year about um, your your call to uh, to Greenville and and the transition there. You know, in any organization, you know, Greenville's had one president, uh, Dr. Piper, and 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 this goes for churches also. You know, I think about uh, some of the churches in our denomination. You know, like um, I think about Harry Reader's tenure, for instance, at, at Briarwood. You know, Harry Reader's just had this marvelous tenure at Briarwood, and he is rightly held in great esteem there. And I hope he doesn't retire anytime soon. But, you know, whoever follows Harry Reader or somebody like that has a, a challenge of how do I follow a, a pastor or a president whose personal stamp, you know, is felt so deeply uh, in this place. And I know you've thought about this and prayed about this and, and uh, been preparing for, you know, how do I step in an institution that's had only one president so far? And understandably is shaped so much by that man. You know, Jonathan, what, what do you think are kind of the key challenges you have? How are you thinking about that? Because this goes, obviously, this is not a unique thing. A lot of pastors face this same challenge in going in after a long, um, successful tenure of, of their predecessor. How are you thinking about that? How, are, how have you been preparing for that? And, and how are you approaching that as, as your tenure begins? Yeah, a couple of things about that. You're right, Todd. I mean, we've talked about it before, and, uh, and it's something I, I thought a lot about and other people have, have raised with me. The first thing I would say, and I cannot state this uh, emphatically enough, Dr. Piper has been incredibly gracious above and beyond what I could have ever expected throughout this entire process. He's been supportive. He's been helpful in tangible ways. He's gone out of his way to do things that I wouldn't have even considered asking him to do um, on my behalf. He's taken a great interest in my family. So in every respect up to this point, he's been a model of graciousness, kindness uh, to me. And that's made, of course, an incalculable difference in this whole transition. I think one other thing, or a couple other things spring to mind, though. One is that I, you know, it's, it's obvious if you hear me talk or if you know anything about uh, my background, that we're, we're from different places. He's from the South, and I'm not. He and I have different uh, life experiences. And so there's a sense in which I think I would be a fool, and I think really anyone would be a fool, to come in and say, I'm going to do exactly what he mm. did and in right. the way in which he did it. There's a sense in which I don't really even face that temptation because it's so manifestly obvious to everyone that I couldn't do that. That's it's not who I am. So I had a lot of conversations with the board about that at the beginning of the process and throughout the process, and they were well aware of that. And, and, and again, it's, it's obvious. So in a sense, that takes the weight off. I'm not a student of his who's trying to sort of uh, uh, emulate him in all kinds of, of ways. I, I, I just, I don't have that blessing, but I also don't have that burden right. um, in this position. And so I think that helps. So his graciousness the fact that we are different uh, really helps. And then the other thing I would say is this, that people have asked me, how are, am I going to handle that? And, and I turn it around and I think, I, I think it's going to be a bigger challenge for him. If I were in his shoes, uh, <laughs> yeah. watching someone else invariably make a lot of mistakes and, and do things a little bit differently, uh, I think that would be difficult. And so I have been impressed in watching him more than I've felt any particular challenge mm -hmm. that I'm facing. Yeah. Yeah. It would be difficult to let go of the reins after so long. Yeah. I, I agree. I think that's a difficult proposition. And, and I think, you know, he's, he's done it so far in, in a way that is 
that I would hold up as a model mm-hmm. to anyone who is making that kind of handoff that you described. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Thinking about seminaries, Jonathan, uh, I mean, there are a lot of seminaries now in the United States, the Westminster East, Westminster West, there's the RTS, Behemoth. Uh, if you're a Baptist, of course, Southern uh, Baptist Convention now has a number of, of, of places where you know, one could confidently recommend, no seminary is perfect, but one could confidently recommend mm-hmm. students go to. And then we have the, the kind of the smaller reform seminaries you got. Uh, I better mention this because Barry will bash me if I forget to mention the RP Seminary in Pittsburgh. Lovely pace, Barry York, if you're listening in, give you a good plug there. You've got Mid-America uh, and you have Greenville. I typically get two, three students a year at Grove asking me about seminary and where I would recommend. And if they're Reformed, if they're Presbyterian, my thinking is, you know, you want a high doctrine of Scripture, Orthodox doctrine of God. I'm tending to push people or, or to recommend people to Westminster, California, or to one of the RTS campuses. Uh, why should people like me consider Greenville as, as an option in that context? What, what will students get from Greenville? I don't want you to run down other seminaries. That's a distasteful way of, of marketing. Uh, but what is it that Greenville offers perhaps that you might miss at a Westminster, California or at, a, or at an RTS campus? Yeah, I don't want to run down any of those seminaries either because I think they're such great places. I have good friends at, at all of them. Oh, come uh, on, John. You're a president. You want them to go out of business and send their guys to you. I, I, that's, that's genuinely not the case. Uh, I, I really, you're a I godlier really man than that. me, brother, but we've always I, known that. <laughs> I, I, re, I really mean that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for the work they're doing. Yeah, so I think uh, Greenville has some distinctives that it's been known for. I think that it's, it's always been a place, and I want it to continue to be a place, that is very serious about the confessional standards of our churches, so that those standards are not only held to without reservation by the, the faculty who teach here, but also are uh, taught very clearly to, to students. I think that it's one thing to say that our professors sign a doctrinal statement, um, and it's another thing to say that our students graduate knowing it and understanding mm-hmm. it and understanding how it works itself out in the life of the church. I think that we've also stood fairly firmly for uh, a regulative understanding of worship, a uh, biblical understanding of worship that would be regulated by the scriptures. And so that I, that I think comes out of our standards and comes out of the scriptures, but is an important marker. We want to graduate men who are equipped for pastoral ministry. Um, it's an interesting thing that I've found at Greenville, having been at, at a couple other places. One of the things that is striking is that all the students during the week, they're talking about their churches. They're talking about what they're doing in their churches. They're all actively involved. We work hand in hand with presbyteries and with pastors in the training of these men. And so I think there is that kind of uh, what I think of as a laser-like focus on pastoral preparation. We want pastors who are going to be faithful under shepherds in Christ's church, long-term ministry, ministry that is a, 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 an ordinary means of grace ministry. Sometimes you can find places that have a sort of divide between those pastors who can preach and who can uh, do their work in the study and those who can uh, get out and, and spend time among their people. We don't, we don't want those things divided at all. We want uh, men who are willing to be servants of Christ, ministers of the word, both publicly and privately. And so those are things that I think a lot of places would say as well. So I, I don't know that that's uh, a list that 
wouldn't be signed off on by others. But but that's that's what we've kept our eyes fixed on throughout uh, really the history of Greenville Seminary, and I hope moving forward. So so we have graduates who, in a way, this sounds silly, but we have graduates who who all they know their catechisms, they they know the confession, they know the scriptures. There's a heavy emphasis on the biblical languages. What what I would I consider to be the classical tools. Uh, of pastoral preparation, at least in in the Reformed tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, Jonathan, some traditions in among Christians don't value formal training. You can go to any community in America and find churches uh, that that don't value, and in some cases are suspicious of formal training. I wonder if you could kind of tell our listeners why in the Reformed tradition um, in general, and Presbyterians, you can't be ordained, you can't become a pastor. In, in the PCA, for instance, and, and the OPC, without formal seminary training. Why in the Reformed tradition, both both Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists, why are we such sticklers for that? Is, is it because we're super legalistic and hate everybody? Or, or is there another answer behind why in the Reformed tradition we're so serious about formal training? Yeah, historically, I think you could make a very strong case that an educated ministry leads to a greater degree of faithfulness long-term uh, mm-hmm. in the church. So I do think there's a historical argument to be made there. And, and as you said, Todd, the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition has been adamant about the need for an educated ministry. Yeah. I, I think biblically speaking, and this, of course, is the more important argument, biblically speaking, I, I don't think you can read the New Testament and particularly the pastoral epistles without encountering the fact that Teaching and preaching and, and, and pastoral work requires great diligence and even great study. Of course, Paul famously talks about this in 2 Timothy 2, where he talks about the unashamed workman. And the way I like to think of it is this. I mean, we, we pray for workers. Jesus told us to pray for laborers in the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. But Paul uses that very same word for workers or laborers, and he, in my mind, kind of expands even more by saying, what you really want to be is an unashamed worker. And an unashamed worker, according to 2 Timothy 2, is one who correctly handles the word of truth, who knows how to handle the word of God. And handling the word of God, I think we would all agree, requires in our day and age, study and careful preparation, including preparation in biblical languages and other things like that. So that's what we're after. We want laborers. And, and, I, and I thank the Lord for people like the men you described who, who maybe just go out and, and share the gospel and, and, and try to do the Lord's work. I'm so grateful for people like that. My life has been affected positively by men like that. Having said that, I, I, I want to say, well, yes, but, but then Paul goes a step further and, and, and says, yes, laborers, but unashamed laborers. Mm-hmm. And what I want for myself and what I want for all of my students is that when they reach the end of their ministry, they will be workers who have correctly handled the word of truth. Mm-hmm. And so that handling of the word of God to me is fundamental to everything that we do publicly and privately. It's what governs our churches. And so that to me is the biblical uh, rationale for, mm-hmm. for everything we do at the seminary level. Yeah. I, I think the first class I ever took in seminary, and I did it via an extension. I was serving as a youth minister and I took a, a class where I would drive to, in, to another city and spend all day Monday 
in this one class and it was synoptic gospels and the, the first thing it did for me that was incredibly valuable was it i learned in that first seminary class how much i didn't know and and so it was humbling in that way and i immediately began to have to evaluate some of the things i've been teaching because some of it I, I look back on and cringe and seminary served me the first thing that seminary served me well in was to be more humble because i just didn't know what i didn't know at that time and uh, and and so that that was kind of, that kind of got me on to where some more helpful things could be built but uh, yeah, we, we value this because we, we see the ministry of the word being such a sober, vital thing in people's lives that unless for some reason it's impossible for you to get formal training, yeah, you do. And, and fortunately now, it's easier than it's ever been to get formal training in terms of, of how seminaries operate. And, uh, yeah, that's available. right. We want to make it, and look, there's no question that there are barriers to people receiving formal education. There are financial barriers. There are time mm -hmm. barriers. One of the other things, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, and I think it's worth mentioning even in terms of students who might be looking into seminary, Greenville has worked really hard and we're continuing to work hard. It's not easy because it requires a lot of fundraising, but we've worked really hard to make um, our tuition uh, really almost dramatically low. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I've been told, uh, I can't independently confirm this, but I've been told that no one who's gone here has ever had to take out any loans or anything mm -hmm. like that for their seminary education. So you're right. We're trying to eliminate some of those barriers that are traditionally faced to seminary education. But I agree with you totally, Todd. And I don't know about you, but some of the most godly men whom I've ever met who are at the end of their journey will say things like this, you know, boy, when I open the Bible, I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface. And these are men who know more about the scriptures right. certainly than I do. But, but it's inexhaustible. Mm -hmm. And I think that sense of the depth of the word of God is important because you certainly don't graduate from seminary knowing everything. Uh, it's not that, but, right. but it, when it's doing what it's supposed to do, it gives you the tools, right. a lifetime of study in the word of God, which is just inexhaustible and rich and more precious than any, anything we could have on earth. Right. Yeah. Connected to that and maybe sort of putting a, uh, I suppose a bit the case contrary in some ways is that, you know, a lot of, seminary graduates have a reputation for being very arrogant uh, <laughs> and often very disrespectful uh, and they go into churches and they do a lot of damage uh, to what extent is it the seminary's responsibility to reflect on that and to think about how not to produce that kind of person uh, and to what extent is it just well Young guys are arrogant, period. <laughs> Not a lot we can do about it. We just have to hope they do minimum damage as they're actually growing up outside. And I think this particularly pinches for the... I, I've got Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic friends who have similar experiences of young priests in their churches. So it's not exclusively Protestant thing, but the Reformed world does seem to have a particular reputation <laughs> for producing... You know, can I say the word jackass on this? But producing <laughs> jackasses who need to grow up when they leave seminary. John, do you have any ideas? Is that kind of, okay, we just got to hold our nose and live with this? Or other things that you think seminaries can, can deploy or do in order to ameliorate that somewhat? I think there are things that you can try to say uh, during the time when students are here. One of the things that 
um, I, I know firsthand is that many of the professors here will tell students flat out, you know, don't go into a presbytery and try to, you know, make your mark right away. Sit and listen for a year, for two years. Don't go into a church and try to upend everything and tell everyone they're wrong immediately. You know, wait and get to know the people, love them. Now, that advice isn't always heeded. So you can say it, but it doesn't always happen. I think this is where uh, there is some benefit to being a somewhat smaller seminary where we really know all of our students. I think one of the things that we need to continue to focus on is keeping in touch with our students after they graduate. If, if, they, if they still look to their professors as kind of mentors or, or guides, then I think it's, it is incumbent upon us as professors to say to these students, listen, I, I see what's going on. And if you didn't hear me during the four years you were here, hear me now. This is, you're, you're following an unwise path. So I do think there's a role for that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's something that goes beyond the time they're, they're with us in the classroom. And again, I think it's something that we, with a seminary our size, we are, we are positioned to do. Because, you know, we, we, we pray for our, our graduates on a regular basis. And, you know, we spoke about Dr. Piper. He knows many of them and he has a list of of all their names and, and where they are, and he prays for them. So I think there, there are things that can be done along those lines. Then the other thing I would say is, you know, you're, you're right. These, uh, just like in pastoral ministry, you can, you can preach faithfully and teach faithfully, and people can miss what you're saying or, or misrepresent what you're saying or misappropriate what you're saying. That certainly happens in seminary education too. So there's no, there's no um, fix for human nature uh, that, that we can just, just by our teaching that we can provide. But I hope that by, by modeling, by example, by teaching, and then by ongoing kind of keeping tabs on graduates, we can work with them on that. There are besetting sins that, that youth brings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting, actually, I was thinking about this in the pastoral epistles because when Paul says flee youthful passions, we almost invariably, or I had almost invariably heard that expressed in terms of sexual sin. But when Paul says flee youthful passions, the next thing he talks about is actually, you know, being argumentative and, and, and being uh, factious. And so I, I think we have to take seriously the fact that those are besetting sins in younger ministers. No, and that's no. not an excuse. No. Uh, that's not an absolution for any in teachers or anything like that, but it's, it's a reality. Yeah. Particularly when, when that younger man has, has had the privilege for several years of, of, of having such great stuff poured into him. He, know, he knows more now than he ever has before. And, uh, and sometimes that can, and so all of us, I think, have to to kind of go through that, you know, Jonathan, we we've had uh, we've actually interviewed one of your faculty members uh, last year, Michael Morales, uh, who wrote my book of the year last year, "Who May Ascend the Mountain of the Lord," a study on on Leviticus, which is just outstanding. You, you've got uh, you know Ryan McGraw, who's doing great work in systematic theology. Um, Ian Hamilton is he on? Is he still? Uh, yeah, uh, on, on faculty there. I, I sat under Ian Hamilton's preaching um, two years ago in in a retreat and. I just, I thought that's what preaching is right there. It was phenomenal. I, I still think about it uh, regularly. So, but, but you have a number of faculty there that are doing really vital work in various areas from, you know, preaching to systematic theology, uh, biblical studies, um, guys who are producing some work that everybody's reading or should be reading. 
um, right now. And that's exciting. Uh, that's, uh, I know it must be an encouragement to you stepping in in that role of president, knowing that you've got some world-class faculty. Yeah, it's very encouraging to me. Uh, you know, you, you, you said it about Michael's book. I, I think his numbers book, when it comes out, may be your book of the year. Mm-hmm. I've heard about year. it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, really, really encouraging to see the labors of those men. And I get the privilege of even seeing it day to day. I see them in their studies, in the library all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. really just, just putting in the work that's necessary for that kind of thing. Um, the other real encouragement is not only is it, is it great stuff, these are men who are involved, and I can tell you this firsthand, they are involved actively in their local churches and with their families. And mm-hmm. so they're not, uh, well, it's encouraging to hear you say that. And of course, that's the way that many people are introduced to seminary mm-hmm. faculty. The reality is these are churchmen. These are, right. these are men with pastoral hearts and, yeah. uh, and, and a real desire to see uh, uh, students train for gospel ministry in the local church yeah. uh, long term. Yeah, it's great to hear and encouraging. And uh, again, our, our guest today has been Jonathan Master, who is the incoming president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Jonathan's a friend of ours. He's, we, we've had him on uh, before, and um, we're excited about your role there at GPTS. Uh, Jonathan, we're, uh, we, we think, obviously, we, we believe they chose well, and uh, we're excited about the work that's being done there. And as a premium to our listeners, if you will go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, uh, you can register to win a, a really wonderful book from a faculty member at GPTS. Uh, Ryan McGraw uh, has a wonderful book on the doctrine of the Trinity, knowing the Trinity. It's readable, it's accessible, and in recent years, we have come to see uh, just how important it is for us to um, return again to, to the historic Orthodox uh, Doctrine of the Trinity, and this is certainly a, a, a book that will help you understand what we're talking about when, when, we, when we reference that. And so if you'll go to our website, you can register to win a copy of, uh, of Dr. McGraw's wonderful book, Knowing uh, the Trinity. And as you're there, if, uh, if you feel so moved to make a contribution to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so they can continue to provide excellent content, uh, then, uh, then that would be much appreciated as well. Uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on uh, with us again. And, and we always are especially thankful for return guests because you're particularly brave in entering the, uh, uh, the octagon once again. So thanks for being with us. Oh, Todd, thank you. Thanks for having me, Carl. Good to see you. Good to talk to both of you. Good to see you. Give our love to the first lady. Yes, we'll do. We'll do. Blessings uh, in Greenville. Blessings on that ladder in the study. And want uh, this ladder? I do. I want it bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening uh, today, and uh, we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin.
Ready to record, Mark? Great. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my usual co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, uh, pastor of Harris of a... Uh, uh, sorry, let me start again. What's, what's your church, Todd? Covenant, Covenant Presbyterian. Presbyterian Church. Harrison That's Berg, a throwback to when you introduced me as your very good friend and got my name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I do remember. Really good. <laughs> it's my really good friend, Orson Welles. Oh, I mean, John Master. What did I introduce you as, actually? I think it was like Jonathan Martin or something. something John, like that. John. <laughs> I do remember. I don't remember the name, but I remember, and I remember being totally unaware of the gaffe until you told me about it. <laughs> so you'd like to do more with your church's website especially in this day and age when keeping your members and visitors informed is so important. Hi, Eric here from Reformed Media. I've developed Reformation Sites as an easy-to-use website platform to help Reformed churches reach out more effectively. With many beautiful mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful services, and useful features such as Sermon Manager, online bulletins, courses, and notifications, your church's website will be ready the next time a major event happens. It also integrates with other popular services like Sermon Audio, online donations, and live streaming with pricing that fits into any church budget. To celebrate the launch of Reformation Sites, we're offering free basic setup for a limited time. The first 30 signups may also receive a free wordmark logo designed for their church. Go to ReformationSites.com to get started today. Or call me, Eric, at 561-900-6886 to explore the possibilities. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern reformation. <laughs>